Welcome to The Experts Speak, a product of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. There continues to be a great discussion about attention deficit disorders, and today we want to talk about that condition as it exists in adults and in older adults as well. David Goodman is an associate professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He is the director of the Adult Attention Deficit Disorder Center of Maryland. He has kindly agreed to talk to us about this condition. Dr. Goodman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start with an overall definition. What is ADD, and what is the difference between hyperactive and inattentive types, and are there other subtypes? Tell us a little bit of generally what we're talking about, please. ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, is a neurobehavioral disorder often associated with children. The prevalence rate in children in the U.S. is conservatively 8 to 9%. Then the symptoms are in two domains by DSM-5 criteria, that is inattention, of which there are nine symptoms, and then hyperactive impulsive symptoms, of which there are nine. And so the DSM-5 has a symptom count threshold. For children, it's six of nine in one or and or the other category. In adults, because the DSM-5 now includes adults in the ADHD arena, the adult symptom count threshold is five of nine in one and or the other category. So inattention tends to be things like easily distracted by noises and movement around you, careless errors, difficulty sustaining attention, typically seen in reading and homework assignments or boring tasks, difficulty listening, often doesn't finish tasks, avoids tasks because it requires a lot of mental effort, that's procrastination, forgetful and losing things. What's important as I go through that list, everyone who does ADHD knows that list. What's important is beyond the list, you have to see how the symptoms manifest for a particular person. So for a child, you would be asking different symptoms, different contexts of those symptoms than you would be for a teenager or a young adult versus an older adult. So the child in the classroom has difficulty sustaining their attention, they're daydreaming, they're doodling. The teenager might have difficulty sustaining attention, so they're sitting on their phone under their desk. The young adult at their job has difficulty sustaining attention, so he's also checking his phone or looking at the Internet and not finishing. So the symptoms have to be inquired about in the context of the environment and the age of the individual. The other category of symptoms are the hyperactive and impulsivity symptoms, and they include things like fidgeting, difficulty sitting still for extended periods of time, moving around excessively, talking excessively, interrupting. And again, it's within the context and the age. So it's easy to identify the child who's fidgety and restless because he's clicking his pen, he's tapping his foot, he has to go to the bathroom, but actually he doesn't really have to go to the bathroom. My patients say, you know, I used to go to the bathroom as a kid because I just had to get up and move around, and that was the only way the teachers were going to let you out of your seat. As you get older, for example, the college student has difficulty sitting still in class because, again, they're rustling their papers, they're clicking their pens. The guy who's sitting in a meeting when he's 35 years old has to get up for water, then gets up to go to the bathroom. People just figure, well, you know, he just has to get up and do these things. But actually, those are examples of, of feeling restless. So we know that this disorder exists in children. The gender ratio is about three to one, male to female. However, as these children age, two of three children will continue to have symptoms into adulthood. The hyperactivity and the impulsivity 
tends to diminish somewhat so that the older patients, young adults, mid-adults, often get diagnosed not because they're hyperactive and disruptive as the boys, but they get diagnosed because they're inattentive, disorganized, and inefficient during the course of the day. I can ramble on with the science of all of this, but people who say ADHD is not a psychiatric disorder are simply the Rip Van Winkles of the world who fell asleep 40 years ago and just woke up. They haven't read any of the research. And if you think that this is solely a U.S. phenomenon, you'd be wrong because the World Health Organization recognizes ADHD as a worldwide disorder. There's international research on this, and you can virtually pick any country on the globe, and they have prevalence rates, and they have research that's generated from that. So let me stop there. I know I've thrown a lot of information at you on that. It's good information, and I remember when I was in training, there really wasn't a hard way to classify this in adults. We used to call it attention deficit disorder residual type. So now it's changed. Now we're actually recognizing it as a condition in adults. That's a rather significant improvement, I think. Oh, well, it's huge. You know, ADHD didn't exist once the pediatrician discharged her from the office. We now know from the initial Canadian studies, which came out in the late 80s, They were following children, and so they took children and they followed them seven years. And what they discovered is that even after the age of 18, you continue to have these symptoms persist. So we now know from longitudinal studies, children identified and followed. The longest longitudinal study published now is 33 years. So it is without doubt that ADHD persists in a large number of children with ADHD. And when we get to this subject later in the discussion, I will tell you that ADHD doesn't go away when you get your ARP card or your Medicare card because it continues into the later years of your life as well. So it is a life neurodevelopmental disorder that has very specific psychiatric phenomena. The challenge, and I'm glad, Abby, that you asked me to do this, was because when you run through the list of symptoms of ADHD, if you know what ADHD is, you go, aha, this is pretty evident. If you don't know what ADHD is, these symptoms end up getting dropped in other diagnostic categories, and that's where people end up getting misdiagnosed with anxiety and mood disorders, and the ADHD gets completely missed because, as you said, We weren't trained on ADHD very much. We had three months in child psychiatry. Nobody discussed it in adults. And so it's not part of the landscape of the adult psychiatric evaluation. So what would bring a patient to you as an adult, maybe when they're, you know, 50 or 60 years old, that the question of ADD would come up to what what triggers the connection to you? So you just mentioned ADD, and I want to clarify, ADHD is the formal diagnosis. Okay. Those, that, gets, that, that gets broken up into inattentive presentation, combined presentation, and hyperactive impulsive presentation. The combined presentation occurs about 65% in children. The inattentive occurs at about 33%, and then the residual 2% is just hyperactive impulsive symptoms. That's in adults. That's in children. As we move into adults, though, those percentages shift, and a lot of the adults are presenting with inattention. What brings the older adults in are several reasons. One is they may have read an article in a top-tier media or newspaper or television that talks about ADHD. They go through the symptoms, and the patient scratches their head and goes, well, he just described me for my whole life. Maybe I should go get an evaluation. More typically, the adult child 
of the older parent gets diagnosed when they're 35 because their 7-year-old just diagnosed. And the 35-year-old turns around to dad and says, you know, you, you were always like this. I mean, you would lose your tools and you'd run late picking me up to school and you wouldn't stick with me when we were doing my homework because you got distracted. You should go see somebody about this. And the reason you should is because ADHD is highly heritable. 75% of the cause is related to genetics. So we often go looking for first-degree family members who have passed this condition down. It's then when a dad at 55 or 60 gets approached by their adult child and says, you know, why don't you go see this guy? He really seems to know a lot about ADHD and older adults and, and get yourself evaluated. That's really how people come in. It's most often family members or you've read an article and I've identified with the symptoms. It would seem that the diagnostic workup, the challenge for an older adult, is far more complicated because they're on other medications. They may have developed a psychological styles in their life from an undercurrent of ADD in a lot of ways. But you also have to look at the aging process. You have to look at agitated depressions. You have to look at possible manias and substance abuse. What is your protocol? How do you go through this? Just talk about it, please. Yeah, it's very complicated in the older adults over the age of 50. So the first cornerstone of this diagnosis is that ADHD symptoms start in childhood. Most other cognitive changes that occur in the older adults are time-stamped later in life. So if you have difficulty establishing childhood symptoms or adolescent symptoms of ADHD, then whatever you're looking at in regards to the presenting symptoms cognitively are probably not related to ADHD. And so that's the easiest way to think of. However, patients are going to come in complaining about anxiety, depression, cognitive changes that seem to occur as a function of age. They're on multiple medications, statins, antihypertensives, cardiac medications, diabetic medications. They may have had medical illnesses that have contributed to cognitive decline. So it is a fairly extensive clinical history that one takes. But again, it's a time stamp as to the onset of symptoms over the course of one's life. If you come in at 60, and I have this experience frequently, you come in at 60 and tell me that your cognitive abilities have declined over the last two years or so. And I just had this a week and a half ago. And he came in and he said, look, I, I just can't remember as well. I can't think as sharply. I can't hold variables in my head the way I used to. I'm not getting things done as quickly as I did. His wife comes in and, and confirms this. I said, well, why did you see somebody who is specialty in ADHD? And then he begins to tell me, well, my adult son, who's 40, got recently diagnosed because his 20-year-old got diagnosed. And then he starts talking about how he was in college and the difficulties he had in college. And then, he thought, then we talked about childhood. And as it turned out, if you simply stuck with the symptoms related to the recent change, you would miss the underlying ADHD. And so that goes to show you that you may have two processes occurring, and that is you have a baseline ADHD. As the person aged, they're now having age-related cognitive changes. And so making that distinction is important because then when you consider pharmacologic choices, if you go ahead and you treat the ADHD, there may be some elements of the cognition that improve related to the ADHD, but the age-related cognitive changes may not improve as much as the ADHD symptoms. And there are specific changes in age-related cognition, like 
word-finding, spelling that are not associated with ADHD. So you can sometimes sort out these clinical differences in the clinical interview. Of course, you could end up sending this person for neuropsychological testing to try to sort that out, but there really is not any research on the neuropsychological test results of ADHD in older adults. So you can come up with deficits on the neuropsychological tests, but you then have to interpret those in the context of is this chronic ADHD or, and or what of the deficits are related to age-related cognitive decline. That then moves on to mild cognitive impairment, which is a degree worse than age-related decline. And then from there, you move into pre-dementia or dementia. So, right, your question after my three paragraphs, how complicated is this in older adults, it's very complicated. And it really requires both the time and the expertise of the clinician to sort through which of these diagnostic buckets we drop the symptoms in. You had mentioned anxiety and depression, and certainly we all know that anxiety and depression can cause cognitive changes. Those cognitive changes are likely worse in older patients who have anxiety and depression. But I guess what my point is at the end of this lengthy answer is that don't dismiss the cognitive changes in older adults as simply age-related, anxiety-related, or depression-related. Because if the person says, look, I've had these cognitive symptoms 10 years ago, then you're talking about a different process that may be ADHD and not related to the acute presentation of age-related or anxiety or depression. Which goes back to the very old standard notion of a good history, just a solid good history. Now, what, what's also very intriguing as you talk about this is you get someone who's 50, 67 years of age, they are on a whole sundry of medications as you, you listed, and some of them in a manner can deal with ADHD and, and this whole spectrum. For example, some of the antidepressants, there's an overlap. Let's go then to the, the treatment modalities here because they seem by and large to be involved in the stimulants. We give stimulants to help calm things down. Let's start as much as we can understand, please, with the paradoxical reaction. You're giving a stimulant to calm somebody down. It seems backwards. So the term stimulant is the representation of these medications in non-ADHD brains. So in non-ADHD brains, you give people stimulants, you increase their dopamine and norepinephrine, to some degree some serotonin. And the psychological experience of increasing those neurotransmitters is that your mood, your cognition, and your energy level improve. That in no way makes a diagnosis. It simply means I've changed your brain chemistry. This is a psychological experience. In regards to medication specifically for ADHD in older adults, two parameters. One is, is it effective? And the other, most importantly, is it safe? So is it effective? The answer to that is yes. There are a handful of studies, most of them out of the Netherlands, which has an excellent research center on ADHD. And they've shown people who are older, who go on stimulant medications, actually have improvement in cognition and improvement in quality of life measures. So it does work. Now, it may not work as well because as you age, your dopamine receptors and norepinephrine receptors decline in number and density. So the response may not be as good as a younger adult, but it certainly is substantial enough. The non-stimulant medications like atomoxetine and then also the alpha agonists which have indications in children but not adults, can also be helpful. The most important aspect of this that clinicians are concerned about is safety. 
can we use these medications safely in these patients? And given that there are multiple medications, what are the implications of drug interactions and risks associated with that? It's surprisingly remarkable that my experience, and I have a lot of experience with older people on stimulants, they are relatively safe. I have patients who have cardiac disease, multiple stents, patent ductus of valley, right bundle branch blocks, post-MIs, post-strokes. I'm fortunate to work in a community at Hopkins in Baltimore where the cardiologists are fairly sophisticated, and although they'll help me reviewing the safety, they often shrug their shoulders and say, look, you know what you're doing. Check blood pressure and pulse. If the patient is symptomatic in any way, then give us a call and we'll go from there. So from a safety parameter, you do monitor blood pressure and pulse as, as we would routinely with stimulant medications, and then you start low, as we always say, and dose up accordingly. I just want to come back to your remark and highlight that a good clinical history is essential, but it requires two things. One is time, which is a very valuable commodity in, in this day and age. The other has to do with training. You can only do a comprehensive psychiatric evaluation if you've been adequately trained to look under all of the stones. And if you don't know some of the stones exist on the landscape, you never look under those. And that, again, is why I'm grateful that you're running this program, because clinicians have not been trained on ADHD in adults, and certainly nobody has been trained on ADHD in older adults. When you look at the National Comorbidity Survey, which is the largest epidemiologic study, in that study, 18 to 45, and they looked at the prevalence rate of ADHD in adults, it was 4.4. But what was remarkable is 75% of the adults in that study with ADHD had never been diagnosed as a child. So the idea that you can't be diagnosed with ADHD unless you had ADHD diagnosed as a child is a diagnostic misnomer. And if someone does have an unusual case and they're not experienced in this, and the thing that I'm thinking of is someone who with a history of one of these syndromes and then they develop Huntington's chorea or they develop Parkinson's disease. It becomes very complex, but it's not impossible, and it shouldn't be done by someone who is perhaps very well-intended but not experienced in thinking this through. Most of us do not have adequate training as adult psychiatrists in the subtleties of dealing with this older population. And I, I would highlight that. This is where going back to being a physician, if you value being a physician, it is really important because you can't do this without a broad spectrum of medical knowledge. You need to incorporate your neurology, your pharmacology, your cardiology, your urology, and, and your psychiatry all together to come up with a accurate diagnosis and a safe medical intervention. And the good thing is that, by and large, most of the time, really most of the time, we can get pretty good control over the symptoms. David Goodman is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Hopkins in Baltimore and the director of the Adult Attention Deficit Disorder Center in Maryland. We talked about a lot of things, sir. I hope we raised a lot of questions, and in those questions, got people to ask the questions to the clinicians that they see. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Abby.